Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Nonprofit Utopia Podcast, formerly known as Nonprofit U. Our podcast is an extension of our community, and we provide a forum where nonprofit stakeholders can share lessons learned and discuss the latest developments in the industry. My name is Valerie Leonard, your host. I'm the founder of Nonprofit Utopia, the ideal community for emerging nonprofit leaders. I work with nonprofit organizations that, that make a stronger impact to their clients and communities. You can find out more about us on nonprofitutopia.com, Facebook, and Twitter. I encourage you to follow us and to comment early and often using today's hashtags, Nonprofit Utopia, Field Foundation Illinois, Angelique Power, and DEI in grant making. You can also leave comments on blogtalkradio.com slash nonprofit utopia. The chat room is open, and you can post comments and questions. In order to use the chat room, you must open a listener-only account, and really all you have to do is press a button. You will find the link to open the account page for this episode you know, right on the page beneath the chat box, and I promise you it only takes a second or less. You can also email me questions at ValerieFLeonard.com, I'm sorry, or ValerieFLeonard at NonprofitUtopia.com. We'll be taking questions by phone and from our chat room at about the 30-minute mark or so. The call-in number is 347-884-8121. Again, that number is 347-884-8121. We encourage you to sign up for our mailing list to keep abreast of the latest developments with the nonprofit Utopia community. We've included a link to our mailing list in the comment section of this episode, and you can also follow the other links on the episode page. When Angelique Power was named president of the Field Foundation of Illinois, three questions guided their grant making. First of all, is racial equity and philanthropy even possible? Second, can the fallacy of philanthropic expertise find a way to create room for the nonprofit visionary to lead? And thirdly, can we ask more of ourselves in philanthropy, listen more, talk less, focus on areas that have been disinvested in, and lift the powerful organizations that have grown in spite of and in abstraction to that disinvestment? We'll talk about the Field Foundation's priorities, approaches to grant making, and the impact of their investments in underserved communities throughout Chicago and Illinois. Today's guest is Angelique Power, the president of the Field Foundation of Illinois. As president of the Field Foundation, Angelique catalyzed changes within the foundation's grant structure, nonprofit feedback, foundation input, racial justice training, heat maps of Chicago, all of these pieces help reveal a path forward to a new grant model centered around community empowerment through justice, art, media, and storytelling, and leadership investment. This model opens the door to funding for neighborhoods that are too commonly disinvested in and aims at addressing root causes of issues in order to allow every Chicagoan to thrive in this city we love. Power chairs the boards of 6018 North and Inward Chicago, an organization she co-founded dedicated to racial equity in the arts. She also serves on the board of Forefront Illinois and the national organization Grant Makers in the Arts and is a co-chair of Chicago's Mayor-elect Lori Lightfoot's transition team. So, thank you so much for being with us today, Angelique. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to have this conversation. <laughs> okay, yeah. And before we get started, can you tell us a little bit more about your background, how you came to philanthropy in general, and then the Phil Foundation in particular? Sure. And we're having this conversation a day after Mother's Day, so... Um, <laughs> I want to ground it in really what my background is and, and my upbringing. I'm a Chicagoan, 
grew up um, born and raised on the south side, grew up in Bronzeville and then in Hyde Park. Um, my parents mm-hmm. have both passed, but my mother was white and Jewish. Uh, my father mm-hmm. was black. And she was a Chicago public school teacher, and he was a Chicago police officer. And so we mm-hmm. grew up um, with an awareness of being a part of communities and being apart from communities at the same time. We also grew mm-hmm. up witnessing teachers and police officers that are often um, really uh, dealing with in the trenches of systemic inequity and are often blamed for that inequity. Um, and so we had a lot of rich conversations at our dinner table about understanding across difference and also about the systems, in particular in Chicago, that needed changing. Um, in terms of philanthropy, I actually started um, working as, as an assistant in Marshall Fields in their public affairs office when I was putting myself mm-hmm. through graduate school. And that was the first time that I actually worked for an entity that bore the field's name and gave grants. Um, It was corporate philanthropy then and was run. um, Marshall Fields was owned by Target Corporation at that time. And so I spent the first seven years of my career, eight years, um, learning about corporate philanthropy, working in public affairs and then community relations and later moved to private independent foundation work with the Joyce Foundation and now with the Field Foundation. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's amazing. So you mentioned that when you came aboard, you led a restructuring of the Field Foundation of Illinois grant making. What's mm-hmm. changed? Everything. Um, we've changed <laughs> how we give. We've changed to whom we give. We changed how we measure success. Um, how we Mm -hmm. diagnose the problems that we face, and ultimately what we believe our jobs are as grant makers um, and what our responsibility is to communities that we serve. That's great. So what are the Field Foundation's main focus areas? Um, Well, when we went through our process, which I think we're going to talk about um, later, Mm -hmm. like how do you go from – A to Z, what does it mean to have racial equity in the center of your grant making? Um, But when we went through our process, we emerged with a new grant making model, which was community empowerment through justice, art, and leadership investment. And whenever I say our grant making model, the first thing I always say is I know that when a foundation says that they um, do community empowerment, it sounds condescending. It sounds like Mm -hmm. we think in um, the foundation world that we can empower the powerless, which is is not what we mean, and so I always want to clarify language because language is um, important. Um, Mm -hmm. So what we believe is that there's a tremendous amount of power that's in communities and especially in Chicago um, in areas that have been um, disinvested in for decades and where there's an exquisite design of inequity in play, right? Um, We think in spite of that disinvestment, there is brilliant visionaries um, who need to be the designers of change. And so as a foundation, what we do is um, we envision a concept that's like a localized power grid. I don't know if you're mm-hmm. familiar with that, but that's like, you know, um, a space that can that creates its own sustainable energy, so it's not mm-hmm. reliant mm-hmm. on, you know, unreliable resources. And we believe mm-hmm. that there are people and community-based organizations that have a tremendous amount of power. They just don't have as much access to capital And so our job, community empowerment for us, is shepherding more resources to those powerful people that are in place. Um, Justice is our way of focusing on root causes and systemic interventions. Um, Mm -hmm. Art is really interrogating the notion of what gets to be called art. Often it's a nonprofit 501c3 model that gets funded. Art happens through individuals and collectives and businesses. How do we find creativity and fund it. Um, And leadership investment means investing directly in individuals that are doing this work. So we fund organizers, we fund creatives, we fund um, journalists, we fund storytellers. 
um, and we try to kind of get out of our way as a foundation, find mm-hmm. folks where they're doing this amazing work and shepherd more resources their way. Oh, that is great. So I would imagine that given that you're the Field Foundation of Illinois, your grants are made primarily in Illinois and probably more specifically mostly in the Chicago area. Is that true? Yes, actually. When I So I started at the foundation three years ago, and one of the things that we um, – we don't actually call ourselves the Field Foundation of Illinois anymore. We call ourselves just the Field Foundation. Although it's a part of okay. our uh, title and charter, the reason that we were the Field Foundation of Illinois is because part of our history is that the Field Foundation at one point um, split. And there was a Field Foundation of New York, and there was a Field Foundation mm-hmm. of Illinois. And the Field Foundation of New York sunset in 20 years, meaning it gave all of its funding away in 20 years' time, mm-hmm. uh, which is incredible. Okay. I love when foundations take that approach. The Field Foundation of Illinois took a different approach, which was how do we keep our funding local um, and how do we make sure that we uh, respond to community need above all else. And so mm-hmm. um, we don't give across all of Illinois in our process of um, – going through strategic planning and putting racial equity in the center of our giving, we actually found, we we tracked where giving was going. And what we mm-hmm. found is that in Chicago in particular, um, a, the majority of the funding goes to um, organizations that are not located on the south and west sides of Chicago. Um, the majority wow. of funding goes to organizations that are not um Alana is a term that we use a lot, African, Latinx, Asian, Arab, Native American, um, meaning by, for, about folks of color. And so we decided that we wanted to um, disrupt that and make sure that the majority of our dollars go to organizations on the south and west side and go to um, organizations that are led by folks of color, serving folks of color, designing solutions for our communities. That is really amazing. And the fact that you're located in Chicago and you concentrate your grant-making in Chicago does not mean that people from around the world couldn't learn from what you're doing. That's exactly why we have you here, because I think the model – that you have of DEI or diversity, equity, and inclusion is something that should be replicated. You know, I, I understand that it's really, really hard to get people to accept DEI. You know, one of the big problems, you know, from what I understand from other conversations, is having people to really understand, you know, the business case for it. And I, I would imagine that you have similar arguments in philanthropy. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, I think that, um, you know, I would say a few things. Yes, absolutely. I think the more hyper-local you are, um, the mm-hmm. more and the more specific you are in what you're trying to achieve, um, the more applicable the learnings are uh, nationally and okay. internationally. So um, we often go and we travel and we speak with folks about what we're doing locally because it's absolutely transferable and customizable because every place is different. Um, But there's easy, quick learnings about the work that we've been doing at Field and how it could be replicated um, in other states and other countries. So, yes, I agree with you on that. Um, The other thing is that I think that folks, whether you're in philanthropy or you're in business, uh, in the nonprofit and government sector, people, all of us, are uncomfortable talking about race in mixed company. We mm-hmm. um, are afraid of offending, and we are afraid of being offended. And so what we do instead to maintain comfort is we are race agnostic, and we mm-hmm. diagnose problems as being class-based. Um, we uh, we Uh, neglect conversations that actually take into consideration the historic racism structured, designed um, racism and inequity that occur. And we allow ourselves to fall into conversations, either or conversations, like, but what about um, marginalized white rural communities, Um, you know, as opposed to focusing on 
marginalized, disinvested communities of color, as if both can't be valid, important conversations to have in conjunction with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that uh, that fear of not knowing how to have the conversation has codified these structures that are inequitable mm-hmm. um, and that are racist structures. So a lot of what we had to do was figure out first how to have the conversation. And that's why racial justice training for us was extremely important, um, not as a sideline to a strategic plan, but as part and parcel to a strategic plan. So our full board and staff went through racial justice training simply so we could diagnose the issues more accurately. Um, To your point, people worry that DEI is a distraction from solving the problems um, rather Mm -hmm. than thinking that we actually get a much deeper return on investment once we diagnose the problem accurately. I love it. I love it. She's evidence-based all the way. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so the grant-making process itself, um, can you walk us through it from the Fields Foundation perspective? So so what happens from the time the grant making program is conceived to the time you actually fund the individual grantees, monitor their progress, and the grants are closed out. Okay, I'm going to try to do this efficiently because I know (laughs) we don't have all the time in the world and and I could take it um, in telling you Mm -hmm. about the process that we went through to um, put racial equity in the center of our grant making and what it means now. Um, But what I will say is that I started at the Field Foundation in 2016, and um, at that time, a part of the catalyst for change was that the the foundation itself had been um, doing really important work in different categories, a lot of it in direct service, um, and 2016 marked a really important year in in Chicago's history. So when I came to the foundation in July of 2016, um, the state budget, the Illinois state budget, had been frozen for a year already, as I'm sure you remember. (laughs) Um, And it would go on to be frozen for another year. So nonprofits were emaciated. Many have since closed their doors. Um, Many foundations were receiving tremendous amounts of requests. And so there was, you know, a sense of urgency to help and um, not really clarity on how best to help. 2016, we were also still reeling from um, the release at the end of 2015 of the Laquan McDonald video, which showed Mm -hmm. not only um, the captured a, a lynching on camera of Um, a young African-American teenager from a white police officer, you know, who shot Laquan 16 times, 14 of of those shots delivered while he was lying on the ground. But the video and the, um, the way that the video was not released for a year highlighted how complicit Chicago's systems are in upholding these structures. Um, So that Mm -hmm. was going on. And 2016 would turn out to be the second bloodiest year in the history of Chicago due to gun violence. So um, for folks that are listening that are thinking about how do you move change through an organization, everyone tends to use these terms, DEI. Um, They want, and some folks really deeply understand it, but they feel like there's resistance at the president's level or at a board level. Um, I -hmm. think seizing external moments, as a catalyst for change is extremely important. Um, So that was one. Two, um, when I started, we studied philanthropy, and we looked at how you could have a responsive approach, how you could have a strategic approach, um, and then I shared an approach that I called an equitable approach, which I said, I think I'm making this approach up. But um, this would be where you really are focused on the power dynamic inside of philanthropy and trying mm-hmm. to dismantle that. And actually viewing that fallacy of expertise inside of philanthropy, that, that being a conduit to cash, that having proximity to capital makes you smarter, 
um, is extremely detrimental to your investments because the real visionaries are the people who work in nonprofits who are doing the work every day. So if they're not designing the solutions that you're funding, then you're, you're not funding the right things. Um, so understanding that a fundamental approach in philanthropy had to change was another key lever. Mm-hmm. And then um, the racial justice training. And during the racial justice training, um, I had a board member raise her hand and say, you know, I just want to I just want to say very early on in the training, I don't think that the problems in Chicago are actually about race. I think that they're about class. And she was a white woman who said it. And when she said it, I this was a month after the presidential election, mind you, um, in 2016. Mm-hmm. And I felt such relief that she voiced this opinion um, for several reasons. One, this was the argument the country was having, that, you know, what about Mm -hmm. white rural communities? Have we forgotten about them and overvalued communities of color, as I mentioned earlier? Um, People were having this argument in the comments section of social media and not in necessarily a productive way. Um, Mm -hmm. So it was good to actually at the board level have this conversation. And and the other reason I was happy is because people believe um, that this is true. And so it gave us a chance to say, let's make this evidence-driven. Let's actually use this question. How do race and need align in the city of Chicago? Um, And we will come back to you as a board with heat maps and we will come back to you with an answer. And so on um, the Field Foundation website, we've actually published the heat maps. There's a PowerPoint and there's a PDF. They are available for download. You can use them. People use them around the city when we go, um, and people use them as a level set to explain what is meant through data when we say Mm -hmm. the tale of two cities. Um, Mm -hmm. But that was the driving question, Valerie. Like, how do... How does race and need align? And, you know, we came back to the board with the answer. Wow. And and it's amazing how one picture, you can just look at one of those heat maps and you just get it. It's like, aha. Yeah, so when you see layer after layer, you know, so the heat map, what we did was we um, sought communities that are less than 10% Caucasian, and uh, mm-hmm. created a study area and drew a red line around the study area. Um, and that in Chicago is the south and west sides of Chicago. And then we looked at quality of life indicators inside that study area versus outside of the study area. So when you look through um, the heat maps on our website, you'll see that um, things like, you know, uh, the 82% of people in the study area live in poverty, Um, that the students are performing at the 38th percentile versus just outside the heat map where they're performing at the 67th percentile, according to map exams. And when we saw that, we said, where did the schools close when they closed 50 schools in Chicago in 2013? Well, 82% of the schools that closed were closed inside of the heat map. So what what page after page, slide after slide begins to tell the story of is a few things. One, not all white communities are affluent communities. Not mm-hmm. all communities of color are poor communities. But in Chicago, there is a nexus of poverty and trauma and disinvestment that is completely wow. aligned with communities of color. And so when we emerged after studying that evidence, we knew that our job, if we want impact, and I'm doing air quotes around the word impact because it's very loaded, you know, but if we want impact, then our job needs to be about attacking the red line itself. Oh, I love it. And it's so interesting. When I think of redlining, I think about, you know, the banks and how they wouldn't lend within certain communities, and many of those communities are within your current area. You know, the red line. It's the exact same. That's exactly right. That red line hasn't changed in decades because it wasn't, it hasn't, 
um, been allowed to. I mean, that it's not by happenstance that people are performing, underperforming in schools. It's not by happenstance that you're 350% more likely to be harmed by violence if you live within our study area. It is a designed problem. Wow. Right? And the, and mm-hmm. the solution is to change the design. I love it. I love it. So I, I want to remind our listening audience that you're listening to the Nonprofit Utopia podcast, and we're speaking with Angelique Power. Angelique is the president of the Field Foundation of Illinois, and we will be taking questions from our listening audience within about five minutes. If you are, um, if you happen to be looking at the episode page, you can start posting in the chat room right now if you'd like. The call-in number is 347-884-8121. Again, that number is 347-884-8121. So we've noticed that our international audience is growing, and we would like our podcast guests to reflect views from around the world. If you're listening from a country other than the United States and you know of heads of NGOs that we should consider having in the show, please contact us at info at nonprofitutopia.com. So, Angelique, as I was doing preparation for the podcast, I did a little research on your background, and one of the common themes for your career choices has been a concerted effort to bring about diversity and equity everywhere you go. And I, I think our listeners probably pick up on that just in our conversation, you know, just in 20 minutes. So can you share what DEI means to you in your role as the president of the Field Foundation. Yes, and thank you for asking um, this question because I think uh, these are terms that we use all the time and they're very different um, in their meaning. And Mm -hmm. um, I always like to distinguish them. So whenever I talk about this, I always use a restaurant analogy. to distinguish between diversity, inclusion, and equity. Um, So first I'm going to just start by defining it, and then I'll talk Mm -hmm. about how it manifests at field, um, and if we have time, why it's an obsession of mine. (laughs) Um, So diversity, diversity I always say, is is like keeping your restaurant exactly the same um, Mm -hmm. and inviting a few people that are different than you in to enjoy the food. it's also code word for people of color. That is often what we mean um, when we say diversifying a board or diversifying a staff. Um, what we mean is how can we get a few people of color into an existing space um, where the majority of things around them are not like them or for them. Mm-hmm. Inclusion is really mm-hmm. making sure that those few people that are different that are in your restaurant are comfortable um, checking in on them, are you enjoying your meal? Um, would you like a tour of the kitchen? Do you want to learn how to make this food at home? Um, going above and beyond to make those few people that are different feel comfortable. And equity is a radically different idea because it's redefining the entire dining experience. It's really um, changing who has the power to own, who has the power okay. to invite, um, who sets the menu who sets the table, who creates the table, what the table looks like. That When you start rethinking power and resources, you're in the equity mm-hmm. space. And I am very familiar with each of these terms because I've spent different parts of my career working on different parts of the spectrum. And I'm not dismissing diversity and inclusion. Um, I think that those are important um, initiatives. But often I mm-hmm. think people expect the results that can only come from equity work to happen from diversity Mm -hmm. work, that eventually if you just have enough people in the pipeline, then the whole system is going to change. Well, that's not actually how it works. Um, That's why you can easily dismiss diversity efforts to say, well, we've been doing, you know, um, diversity for 30 years and nothing much has changed. Right, because power and resources um, has stayed the same. Those spaces aren't meant for everybody. Um, So when you actually change the way the system works, then you naturally Mm -hmm. attract people from diverse backgrounds. Um, People naturally feel comfortable in those spaces. And so um, diversity for us, 
at Field, we have added new board members. Um, we now have 80% folks of color on our board. As a foundation, wow. that's a big deal. Um, you know, I think that the, the national average, according to D5, is 14%. Um, in Chicago, we're a city that's 60% folks of color. So, um, you know, changing the spine, the governing spine of the organization is one way um, to diversify and to try to make sure that power is shifting to in the equity lens. We've rethought mm -hmm. vendors. Um, we've rethought. We've hired new staff. We've entered into partnerships with um, peer foundations like MacArthur and the Democracy Fund where we are expanding our staff and expanding our programming um, and rethinking who has um, the ability to make decisions on what we focus on. We've created a media and storytelling program that was designed by journalists, designed by Alana, African, Latinx, Asian, Arab, Native American journalists and storytellers in Chicago, as opposed to us designing a program on our own. So those are some of the efforts that we are doing. Um, the reason that mm -hmm. we do this is because the majority of um, foundations, especially locally, will tell you that they target communities of color with their giving. And yet, often in the boardrooms, senior staff and staff of the um, philanthropic organizations that are working, quote-unquote, on behalf of these communities, they don't represent those communities. Um, they don't have those voices as designers. And so it's important to change that. That's amazing. So you're also a member of the Board of Directors for Forefront. And for those of you who don't know, Forefront is a statewide organization based in Illinois, and they provide advocacy and capacity building for funders and nonprofits alike. They also view their work through a DEI lens, and they're encouraging other grant makers and grantees to do the same. So do you feel, you know, from your perspective, I guess the different positions, you know, being a board member of the forefront versus being the chief executive officer for the Field Foundation, do you feel that there's any difference in what you do or the manner in which you might advocate for DEI? Yes. Um, and I'm going to throw grant makers in the arts into the mix because that's a national organization. I've been on the board for five years. I chaired the board for two and chaired a search for them um, that resulted mm -hmm. in moving the offices across the country. Um, Wow. and hiring the first leader of color for the organization. It is now a staff that's fully folks of color um, and has a different focus. Um, well, not a different focus, but it underscores uh, its racial equity work. Um, mm -hmm. I would say that as a CEO, you till the soil, you plant the seed, you weed the garden. Um, as a mm -hmm. board member, you are the water that's needed to make sure that it's always in bloom. And those are different lanes awesome. to be in. Mm -hmm. So um, the Grantmakers in the Arts organization is actually well known at this point for its racial equity work. It started as a racial equity committee um, that had some board members and some non-board members. That actually led internally to uh, training, which then turned into um, a statement that was a at that time considered a provocative statement that was a condemnation of existing philanthropy, not giving enough resources to Alana organizations directly, um, and mm -hmm. was a distinction between diversity work and equity work. Um, now there is the, a, a person of color, Eddie Torres, who runs Grantmakers in the Arts. It's a fully Alana staff. It is based in the Bronx as opposed to in Seattle. Um, and in addition to capitalization and other work, racial equity, they are actually training, crossing the country and training other funders in the work. At Forefront, wow. we're at the um, racial equity stage, committee stage where we have a robust committee. Training of the board has now happened, and there's conversation about how do you operationalize racial equity. Um, so whatever board that I am on, uh, it is really important to work outside of the organization and to really learn how mm -hmm. to build it into the DNA. That's my, op that's my obligation as a board member, in addition to fiduciary mm -hmm. responsibility and all of that stuff. Um, but as a CEO, you are, the, you are the gardener, and it's your responsibility to make sure that it happens. 
That's amazing. You are amazing. You're such a quiet storm. (laughs) You you just have made massive, massive change everywhere you go, and I'm not saying this lightly. And you're so humble and so quiet and unassuming. Thank you for saying that. That really means the world (laughs) to me. It really does. Thank you. That's that's a rare quality, and I I thank you for all that that you do for us. You know, and we don't see all of this work going on. Mm -hmm, Mhm. Mhm. No, a lot of it is is the meta work of just sort of hovering above yourself every day, and Mm -hmm. asking Mm -hmm. yourself questions. The muscle memory in philanthropy isn't toward equity, and so it is actually a constant questioning and rethinking. Okay, so we can start taking questions from our listening audience right now. Our call-in number is 347-884-8121. If you prefer not to call in, the chat room is open, and please feel free to post your questions, and we will make sure that Angelique gets a chance to understand what it is that that you want to know. So, Angelique, we may or may not get calls, but um, while we're waiting, um, I just want to unpack some of the guiding questions you and the Steel Foundation of Illinois asked when you first started. And I know yeah. you can only speak for your work and the work of the Field Foundation when you respond. And the first guiding question was, is racial equity in philanthropy even possible? So how would you respond to that question two years in, into the job? Um, I would say the jury is out. Um Racial equity, you know, as we've been talking about, is about sharing of power and resources. And philanthropy is often about an elite group making choices around resources. Um, so we're trying. Um, we believe mm-hmm. that it's possible. Um, but we also need to check ourselves um, and have mm-hmm. some health skepticism around what we say we're going to do. So, I mean, in some ways you could say, well, you know, how do you uh, relinquish all power if you are accepting uh, letters of inquiry and you're still making decisions? And we're not a big mm-hmm. foundation. We're actually a small foundation compared to others around Chicago. Um, and so we say no the majority of the time, and we're still the ones who are making the decision. So is that racial equity in philanthropy? Um, that's that's really what I mean when, when I ask that question. Is racial equity mm-hmm. and philanthropy even possible? What is the end state of power and resource sharing? Okay, great. And the second question was, can the fallacy of philanthropic expertise just fall away to create room for the nonprofit visionary to lead? Yes. Yes, this, um, you know, harkens back to that what the muscle memory, as I was saying, in philanthropy is that we mm-hmm. are the ones to set um, series of change, that we are the ones to set metrics uh, around what is achievable, um, that we actually set a time frame <laughs> of when uh, this change <laughs> is possible. And then we dole out small amounts, um, you know, or large amounts, um, and and that is how we measure um whether the project went well or not, as if it matched what we thought would happen in the time frame that we set. Um, that That is the, you know, intoxicating effect of being a conduit to cash. You, you, mm-hmm. that is, in, that is believing your own hype. <laughs> okay. uh, right? Because, and, and many mm-hmm. of us actually in the philanthropic sector came from nonprofits. You know, we are organizers and, and workers. But the second that we move to this side, we have to realize that we have stopped being the experts. Um, proximity to capital doesn't make you smarter. So you diminish mm-hmm. your return on investment if you get confused on this. The visionaries are the wow. ones at the nonprofits doing the work every day, learning in real time. So if they are not designing the solutions, then we are in real trouble. And if giving dollars is about um, asking nonprofits to create fiction to make us feel better about our investments, then w- w- what are we doing? I mean, we're we're all missing the point of aiming toward the solutions that we claim that we all want. So we have to remove that piece of it to get um, mm-hmm. to building trust. 
And if we can build trust, then we can actually get closer to learning in real time. And that's why the question of removing the fallacy of expertise residing um, in philanthropy and solely in philanthropy. Oh, this is amazing. And I really do appreciate your transparency. Um, Yeah, it's kind of a wonder that I still have a job, isn't it? Like every day I come to work and I'm like, does this key card work still? Oh, okay, let's keep going. (laughs) Yeah, I'm like, she said what? And and I'm pleasantly, pleasantly surprised every every time I hear you speak. (laughs) That is the beauty of the field of the Field Foundation Board, I have to say, and staff, because, you know, we've been doing this. It's going to be almost three years. In July, it'll be three years. And I think that there's been something really freeing about the approach that we're taking. Um, And to turn metrics into trust building, to turn metrics back Mm -hmm. on ourselves, to really say what are we learning and what are we – how are we iterating on that learning – um, mm-hmm. That has that has been game changing uh, in terms of the relationships that we've been able to build, and you know what we're looking at now is our goals for ourselves. It's really changed how we operate completely. So um, I am grateful for Field Foundation is not is not me. Field Foundation are brilliant program officers that are every day crossing the city back and forth. Um, Field Foundation or, you know, a board of directors, that it's not a family foundation, even though we have three field family members on the board, the majority of the board mm-hmm. are not family members, and that was designed by the family originally. So that is an example of power sharing that is pretty remarkable. Mm-hmm. And, and this is my favorite of those three questions, and it's, all, it's the longest one, but I, I really, really appreciate this one. Can we ask more of ourselves in philanthropy, listen more, talk less, focus on areas that have been disinvested in, and lift the powerful organizations that have grown in spite of and in abstraction to that disinvestment? And again, what's the field response to that question? Well, here I can say yes. Yes, we can. Even though I've been mm-hmm. talking a lot on this episode, I feel. Um, but we can change. We can change our posture um, to one of a listening posture. Um, we mm-hmm. can change how we fund. We the majority of our funds for three years now. I mean, we set a goal that at least half of our funds would go inside of that study area in the heat map. We're closer to 80% of our funds that go wow. directly to that area. We set a goal that 60% of our funds would go to um, Alana, African, Latinx, Asian, Arab, Native American organizations. We're closer to 80% mm-hmm. of our funds. Um, we we focus on the south and west sides of Chicago. We focus on systemic interventions. We fund journalists and artists and organizers and storytellers. Um, you know that old trope that, like, some folks just couldn't find folks of color to fund or find <laughs> folks of color to hire or find folks of color on boards? <laughs> it, it's bananas. That's not true. There, we cannot keep up with the brilliance that is pouring in um, there are so many incredible, powerful organizations that are changing the game and that are innovating for our city. If you look, you find. If you listen, you hear. Wow, that that is so amazing. And I think we already touched on, you know, one bit about your evidence-based approach. You know, you look at the heat maps, you told us what you found, and then you also told us, the response, and it seems to me that you have far exceeded the like, you know, what you thought you would get done. Has that occurred with some pushback from the status quo from time to time? Did you ever get any of that? Yeah, so I think what's been really interesting is that um, I thought there would be a tremendous amount of pushback, in particular when we moved away from funding indirect services Um, because there are many organizations that we had funded 
you know, over the course of 30 years that we are not funding anymore because we do fund mm-hmm. um, organizations that work on systemic interventions now. Mm-hmm. What surprised me is that how many people sent emails after our initial um, – I wrote a letter to the city of Chicago to sort of explain the process that we went through. We put up a process map to show what um, what our journey had been toward racial equity and um, put up the heat maps. We just put out as tried to be as transparent as possible because we know that there's a fickleness in philanthropy, and we didn't want people mm-hmm. to just feel like, oh, today it's racial equity. You know, tomorrow it'll be meow, meow, meow. So we really wanted to explain our thinking behind the things that we were changing. And what's meant the most to me, and this just happened last week again too, is that there are many folks who work in organizations that do direct service. And mm-hmm. um, they wrote to us to say, thank you for what you're focusing on. Because people in direct wow. service are some of the most thoughtful people about what the systemic issues are. Um, mm-hmm. And they understand that it needs to be changed at the root or else they are going to continue to spin their wheels in their work. That really surprised me. Um that people understood the thinking behind our change. Um, So Mm -hmm. I've seen that a lot more than I've seen resistance. Now, there are a lot of organizations that are predominantly white, larger organizations that have received a lot of funding, that are doing good work, that have important policies, that work on behalf of communities of color that are precluded, for the most part, from funding. Um, What -hmm. we'll say is, you know, if you're working with partners in – within the south and west sides primarily, we are more likely to fund your partners that are there. But you can still, you know, continue your partnership. I think that that was a change for people. Um, I think that, you know, that was that's still something that we field a lot of questions on. And um, we do have a portion of our portfolio that goes to citywide powerhouses is the term we use, meaning organizations Mm -hmm. that are, you know, predominantly white-led organizations that are in other parts of the city that are sharing power with um, folks within the study area in ways that are real and extremely interesting and important. And so that is about 10% of our portfolio. Okay, great. Okay, so I want to remind our listening audience that you're listening to the Nonprofit Utopia podcast, and we're speaking with Angelique Power. Angelique is the president of the Field Foundation of Illinois. We're taking questions from our listening audience and chat room right now if you have any questions, and I encourage you strongly to take advantage of this moment. We don't always have a moment to speak directly to the head of a foundation. Our call-in number is 347-884-8121. And before we get back into our interview, I just want to tell you a little bit about Nonprofit Utopia. We are the ideal community for emerging nonprofit leaders, and we've created a safe environment in which our members can innovate, speak candidly about the issues and concerns they face on a day-to-day basis, and share ideas and resources. You can learn more at nonprofitutopia.com and nonprofitutopia.mn.co, and we have links on our episode page. And our mission is to provide ongoing professional development and networking opportunities in which experienced nonprofit professionals can share expertise with the next generation of ethical leaders. The overarching goal of the community is to give our members the tools they need to develop strong organizations that will make a lasting impact. Our vision is to strengthen the global nonprofit sector by providing training and development opportunities for 50,000 emerging nonprofit leaders throughout the world by 2033. And this episode and others like it is just one of the ways. So in the interest of time, we may um, need to skip around a little bit, Angelique. Um, I think one of the burning questions that I have and so many other Chicagoans have is around your work as one of the co-chairs of the transition committee, and you know, I could be transition team, I could be calling it wrong, but I think people know what I mean for our mayor. We just elected a new mayor here, 
in Chicago, and that is Lori Lightfoot, and she wisely named you one of the co-chairs. And I know you can't, you know, reveal a lot of specifics, but I'm just wondering, you know, what you think the implications for the nonprofit sector could be with having Lori Lightfoot in office. Well, first I'm going to officially take off my hat as president of the Field Foundation and and then put on my private citizen hat because um, we have a bright line at the foundation between um, how we interact with government Mm -hmm. uh, entities. And so it is, I do the, I'm helping to chair the leadership transition team as a private citizen. So um, just um, stating that. Mm -hmm. So. Okay. I have to tell you, what's interesting about this process is that there are 10 transition teams, 10 formal transition teams that have been in motion um, that formed shortly after the April 2nd date when Lori became the mayor. Um, Lori, uh, you know, I should say Mayor-elect Lightfoot, um, was received 74% of the vote, I want to say, across Mm -hmm. Chicago. And so... Um, It was a resounding vote for reform. And um, and I I emphasize that because there were two amazing candidates that were running, and they were both black Mm -hmm. women. Um, And to my relief, the conversation, as soon as the field narrowed first from 21 to 14 to 2, um, the conversation was about policy and about policy difference. While these were two black women who were running, we never had conversations about their clothing, about their charm, about their you know um, friendliness mm-hmm. factor, all of the things that sort of uh, became a hallmark of the 2016 presidential election. We didn't see that in Chicago. We didn't see that with two black women running, and I just feel like that's something we should be really proud of as voters and mm-hmm. as a city. Um, and the policies were, you know, you had to really get in there and ask some good questions to find the difference. Um, as a part of the transition team, what I have witnessed is during this handover between administrations, which is one of the quickest handovers between two administrations in the history of Chicago um, because mm-hmm. of the runoff, what Mayor Lightfoot insisted happen is that rather than take existing policy papers on a range of things that help to guide her campaign and just begin to fill posts in the administration, instead what happened is that a robust community-engaged transition process happened. So on these 10 teams, they're led by maybe two to four co-chairs each. In the transition Mm -hmm. team meetings that I went to, and I got to as many as I could, there were between 50 and, you know, 70 people on each of these teams wow. that represented in the Chicago? nonprofit in <laughs> Chicago. And, you know, what I was so surprised to see, and all of this is public because as part of the process when it started to go, each team member on the transition team was asked to write two pages of what their policy recommendations are for the incoming mayor. Um, because of this cast of characters that are you know, many of which are stalwart leaders in business and also stalwart organizers that have raged against the um, the city machine in the past that you would mm-hmm. not expect to be in the room. They're in the room. <laughs> many of them are. Not all of them. And, and not all voices mm-hmm. were included, um, which I know is going to continue, and I'll talk about that. But what I was really surprised was that even in this process there was a push to make everything transparent, So all the memos that everyone created are now online. Everybody can see what everyone is recommending for the city. There is a website immediately set up saying, if you have ideas for the city, submit them. If you want to work for the city, submit your name. I happen to know they're looking at every single one of those ideas. They're looking at every single resume that's being set in through their website. And so... You know, every one of these transition team meetings also started with Lori's values, which was transparency, diversity, inclusion, equity, and accountability. Um, Oh, I love it. Really amazing. And then as people came up with the ideas, they went back to the values. Do they resonate? Do they connect? Do they live the values? That's what you're going to see in the incoming administration. And it's going to be messy because deep, Mm -hmm. robust community engagement is messy. 
Um, mm-hmm. But it's going to be very robust and inclusive. And I think for nonprofits that have felt like they never had a way in or a seat at the table, this process mm-hmm. of rethinking what better government can look like in Chicago um, is underway. And so I think nonprofits really do have to help lead what that looks like. Um, and I think once again, as we showed in the runoff with how Chicagoans actually handle talking policy and making changes, I think we will see that in the next administration. Oh, I love it. I love it. And we've got time for one more question. Um, you can put your your president's hat back on. Okay. It's, it's a beret, uh, and it's back on. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I personally am very impressed with what I've heard today. And, you know, again, I, I continue to tell you, you know, everything you do, it, it seems to be consistent with DEI. It's, it's just part of your DNA, and, and I love it, and, and I thank you for it. And my question to you is, what advice would you share with any of your colleagues in philanthropy or nonprofit management, for that matter, who want to focus more on, you know, not just DEI, but truly evidence-based DEI in their grant making, their programs and services, or, you know, their culture in general? Well, um, the first thing I would say is that if you are um, in Chicago, find your community because there are a lot of people that are working on DEI and racial equity locally. If you are nationwide, there are communities across the nation. And if you are global, mm-hmm. find, connect because this work has to be done in coalition. It cannot be mm-hmm. just you and your organization because it's risky work. So mm-hmm. first, find your people inside and outside of your organization. Two, um, be brave, because a lot of this is asking the questions about um, the unsaid in philanthropy. Um, So we use terms like the achievement gap as opposed to actually looking at the impact of historic racism on the education system. So really what it it requires is Mm -hmm. Um, an ability to, in the midst of the coded language that we use in philanthropy, to um, ask more of ourselves and be brave mm-hmm. enough to ask more. The third thing I'd say is is get trainers. People are hot on getting training. So don't just bring in someone who's going to have a feel-good day on diversity. Um, look for folks who actually do, uh, I would recommend anti-racism training, racial justice mm. training, Folks that actually spend time giving tools, shaking people up, um, making them ask questions about how they as individuals, as, um, as structures and organizations, and also as systems, how they are connected and how racism shows up in the work. Um, those are three ways. And then there's always the power lines inside of an organization. So the senior leadership and the board I would say whatever you do, you need to take it to those sources. Um, There's a lot of organizing uh, that's been happening, especially in philanthropy, um, at the program officer level. And there are a lot of program officers that feel frustrated. Um, They don't know how to move it past that level. And I really think that working with the president who then is beholden to work to the board to get this into a board conversation and a board learning process, that's the way to get Mm -hmm. through real change. Um, And then Mm -hmm. the last thing I'll say is there is a role for everyone in this, regardless of your skin color. So it's really important to not um, delegate DEI work to folks of color inside of spaces. It's really Mm. important if you are a person who – identifies as white, that you use your voice and your privilege to really work with folks of color and to carry the ball down the field, to carry the message, to move for this to be thought of, um, to have this be a part of the conversation, to push for trainers, to push to have the race discussion. Um, That is something that we really rely on our comrades um, that happen to be white (laughs) to push Mm -hmm. where we can't always be the ones to push this conversation. 
That that is rich. So everything rises and falls with leadership, and then also recognizing that it takes a, a village, takes all stakeholders, particularly those who hold the power. Mm-hmm. It sounds to me. Yes. Okay. Great. So we've come to the end of our show, and I'd like to thank Angelique Powell, President of the Field Foundation of Illinois, for being our guest. Angelique, would you care to share any parting thoughts and tell our listening audience how they can get in touch with you? I am so easy to find. I'm at the Field Foundation. Um, You can send me an email there, apower at fieldfoundation.org. We also do, if you're interested in funding, we have information sessions that we do at least three times a year. Um, and that's mm-hmm. where we actually get out. We meet folks and we talk to them about what we're up to and we listen to what you are up to. Um, and the the final thought I would say is just one of gratitude. The nonprofit community is what makes, um, you know, the world that we live in deliver on its promise of justice. And so I just want to say thank you for everyone who's listening who works so hard around the clock in nonprofits. Oh, awesome, awesome. So I'd like to thank our audience for listening to today's episode of Nonprofit Utopia. I encourage you to go to the iTunes page and leave a review. We have included instructions in the comment section to guide you through that process. And be sure and join us next week for another lively episode of Nonprofit Utopia. Our guest will be Bob Doyle. He is the chief evangelist for fundraising report card, and that is an analytics and reporting tool for nonprofits provided by Market Smart. All righty, so until then, I will see you next week, and thank you again, Angelique. Thank you. Take care. Okay, bye-bye.